This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. The way we do it now is we're going to have just the introduction to the show. I have two old friends on. Uh, I have a lot of old friends. Most of my friends are old, and then they're old friends. So one is uh, Susan Gordon, and the other is Steve Early. They wrote an important book called Our Veterans. Winners, losers, friends, and enemies on the new terrain of veterans' affairs. Then we're going to have Channing Martinez briefly talk about how we're endlessly trying to get the military out of the LAUSD schools and the work that the Strategy Center and Students Deserve and others are doing to try to get that to, to happen. And third, I'm going to talk about why the Knicks need to fire Tom Thibodeau and appoint me as their coach. So with that, let's hear Amy Goodman in the news, and we'll talk to you very soon. People were killed and dozens remain missing after a missile attack tore through a high-rise apartment building in the city of Dnipro on Saturday. It was one of the deadliest single assaults of the war since Russia invaded nearly 11 months ago. Officials in Kyiv blamed Russian long-range missiles for the destruction. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres strongly condemned the attack, calling it another example of a suspected violation of the laws of war. A Kremlin spokesperson denied Russia was responsible, suggesting the blast may have been caused by a Ukrainian air defense missile that went astray. Elsewhere, fierce fighting continues to rage in the eastern province of Donetsk, where Russian forces are seeking to take full control of the city of Solidar. Earlier today, the UN's Human Rights Office confirmed more than 7,000 civilians have been killed in Ukraine since Russia's invasion, though the agency believes the true toll is likely considerably higher. In Kyiv, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky cited the latest Russian attacks as the appeal to allies to send even more heavy weaponry. Can Russian terror be stopped? Yes. It is possible to do it somehow differently than on the battlefield in Ukraine? Unfortunately, no. It can and must be done on our land, in our sky, and on our seas. What is needed for this? Those weapons which are in the depots of our partners and which our soldiers are waiting for so much. The United States has launched an expanded combat training program for Ukrainian soldiers. The top U.S. general, Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, toured a U.S. military base in Germany Monday as Pentagon advisors began training about 500 Ukrainian troops in the use of advanced weapon systems, including artillery, tanks and missiles. General Milley's trip came just days after British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said the U.K. would ship advanced 
tanks and hundreds of armored vehicles and howitzers to Ukraine, become the first Western nation to supply such offensive weaponry. On Sunday, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said he expects other allies will follow suit. Meanwhile, German Defense Minister Christine Lambrecht has resigned amidst mounting criticism from some NATO members over the pace of Germany's aid to Ukraine. On Monday, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz toured a German weapons factory, promising to appoint a new defense minister soon. What is important is that when we set about the future of our country, we know that Germany needs a strong military and an efficient defense industry. Last year, the German chancellor pledged to spend over $100 billion to expand Germany's military. In Afghanistan, armed men shot and killed former member of parliament, Mursal Nabizada, on Sunday in an assault on her home in Kabul. One of Nabizada's bodyguards was also killed in the attack, which also left her brother and another guard injured. Nabizada was elected in 2019 to represent Kabul and remained in office until the Taliban takeover in August of 2021. Her assassination came amidst a massive crackdown on the rights of women and girls by the Taliban. Over the weekend, the charity Save the Children reported it has resumed a small percentage of its activities in Afghanistan for the first time since the Taliban banned women from working for non-governmental organizations. The group added in a statement, quote, the ban on female NGO workers on top of the existing humanitarian crisis will drive up the needs of children and have a huge ripple effect. It will mean fewer women and girls are reached with essential support. It will mean more children are forced into labor and marriage. It will mean tens of thousands of jobs are put at risk across the sector, they said. Burkina Faso's government says armed men abducted more than 50 women in two separate incidents late last week in the town of Arbinda. The women were kidnapped as they foraged for leaves and wild fruit due to widespread food shortages in Burkina Faso's northern Saho region, which is under blockade by insurgents affiliated with al-Qaeda and ISIS. The conflict has killed tens of thousands of people and displaced about two million people across Burkina Faso since 2015. In California, the death toll from two weeks of heavy storms and flooding has reached at least 20 after record rainfall and snow continued over the long weekend. The director of the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services described the storms as, quote, among the most deadly natural disasters in the modern history of our state, unquote. In Ventura County, 17 inches of rain fell over the past week. Helicopters were needed to evacuate some residents in the county after flooding and landslides cut off access to their homes. Nearly two inches of rain fell on downtown Los Angeles Saturday, setting a new record. Parts of the Sierra Mountains received over four feet of snow. Over the weekend, President Biden approved a major disaster recovery declaration for California. He plans to visit part of California's central coast Thursday. Meanwhile, climate scientists are predicting the world will see record heat waves over the next two years due to a combination of climate change and El Nino, a natural climate cycle that drives global temperatures higher. Climate scientist James Hansen and his colleagues recently said, quote, we suggest that 2024 is likely to be off the chart as the warmest year on record. 
Welcome back to Voices from the Frontlines. This is your co-host Channing Martinez. We'll be tuning in now to a conversation with Eric Mann, Suzanne Gordon, and Steve Early on their new book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veteran Affairs. As always, we want your support of KPFK and Voices from the Frontlines. Call right now, 818-985-5735 to give a generous contribution to KPFK and subscribe to the Voices from the Frontlines mailing list at www.voicesfromthefrontlines.com. So I read a lot of it, and the first thing I want to say is really congratulations at this level of detail. So the, the specificity and the investigation Suzanne, how long did it take to write? Because I know all these books take take a long time. <laughs> well, I I mean, it took probably two years to write, but really ten or fifteen years of I'm an experience, and really, I I guess more like forty or fifty years, you know. Right. So a lot of our past work informed it, and and so it was probably what two or three years and then but it, it it benefited from steve's long work in the labor movement and anti-war movement my long work in the anti-war yeah. movement and labor movement and healthcare reform movement so that's long and the long and the short of it well you know i'm working on a book now called i saw a revolution with my own eyes um history and strategy and organizing for the revolution we need today. And a lot of it is history, you know, is writing systematic history. So since the FBI already has all the information, <laughs> uh, Suzanne and Steve, why don't you talk about that 40 and 50 year trajectory that does bring you to every book that you write. Maybe I'll start with you, Suzanne, and then go to Steve, because that's a lot, the perspective of why you could write such a great book. Well, we explain in the preface to our veterans that neither of the three authors, uh, Jasper Craven is is much younger than we are, 32, I guess, or 31, but none of us are veterans. um, But we have had a lot of work around veterans' issues and around issues of military and foreign policy and healthcare that touch on veterans throughout all our lives. I mean, I began to understand the consequences of our sort of military, imperial military adventures in, in during the Vietnam War when I was, when I went to college at Cornell and have proposed every one of America's adventures for all kinds of reasons, but one of them is that I don't believe that you should be sending people into harm's way for no reason. And when I've always known that, but when I started working with veterans, I wrote a book called Wounds of War, how the VA delivers health, healing, and hope to the nation's veterans. And when I started hanging out, at veterans hospitals all over the country through the Veterans Health Administration, I really saw firsthand how, what a mistake war is and that you really don't wanna, it shouldn't be an elective exercise. It, um, and um, 
So I think that that long experience, and then I have also been very active in healthcare reform movements and writing and thinking about health systems. And so that long history of, of understanding the brokenness, increasing brokenness of the American healthcare system has helped me look at the Veterans Health Administrations and the benefits veterans receive as a model for what we should all be getting, not just not just veterans. We shouldn't have a, a social welfare system just for veterans. Steve, why don't you talk about some of your background for our listeners. You're on Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show you're on KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web on kpfk.org, and wake up and smell the revolution. Well, actually, of our three co-authors, I'm the one with the the most military experience, if you want to call it that. Uh, 55 years ago, I was a draft-induced cadet in the Reserve Officer Training Corps, uh, Vietnam era. Uh, It was a very formative experience for me as a college freshman in 1967. took me one semester to figure out that... uh, uh, rather than becoming a, an officer in the U.S. Army, I should get involved in the movement to kick ROTC off campus, to end the war, to abolish the draft. And um, I spent the next four years uh, not studying to be an officer, but pretty much working full time as hundreds of thousands of others uh, did back then in the anti-war movement. Um, when I got out of college, I worked for a year as a full time anti-war organizer with the Friends Service Committee in New England. Uh, and then for most of the last 50 years, Suzanne mentioned, I've been a labor activist and uh, started to meet military veterans, including a number of very militant, uh, recently returned Vietnam veterans in various 1970s labor insurgencies that I uh, tried to support and the mine workers and the steel workers and the Teamsters over 30 years as an international rep and organizer for the communication workers. Uh, I met and worked with many veterans who became very active as telephone workers in some of our major contract struggles and strikes. And for many years as a union negotiator had to grapple with this problem of, of health care coverage uh, and how to improve it for people who had the right to bargain about it as a job-based benefit. So have long been involved in single-payer campaigning and got involved in this book project with Suzanne because of the overlap between labor and veterans issues and the importance of defending vet, our veterans healthcare system as a very good working model for socialized medicine. Well, you know, I was, you know, uh, very active and I knew you, Suzanne, during the whole, you know, Vietnam War experience. Um, when I was in Newark, New Jersey, working in the black community with the Newark Community Union Project, I was approached by some anti-war organizers and said, look, I want you to go into this draft board and uh, say I'm against this imperialist war, this war is against black people, and let's all walk out. So I said, well, but I'm not drafted. They said, well, nobody will notice. I assure you, nobody's (laughs) fighting to get in. So I got up and I said, this is an imperialist war. This is a racist war, and I don't want to fight in it. And I walked out, kind of ner- happy I got out. And this brother comes after me. I agree with you. I agree with you. Let, what are we going to do now? 
I said, oh, my God, I didn't think anybody was going to walk out with me. So he was a black man, and I called Lenny Weinglass, who was a very well-known lawyer at the time in Newark. And we, Lenny didn't say, look at my schedule. He said, come on over. And his mother was adamant. He never served. And for the next 30 or 40 years, every time I see Lenny, he'd say, that brother still calls and says, whoever that white guy was, uh, tell him thanks for saving my life. So uh, what you don't understand is we do love the GIs. We love the vets. That's not the issue. We oppose the wars, but we've always had great affection. And there's a long history of GIs themselves and doing and vets doing amazing work. And I loved your opening about the bonus marches in uh, 1932. Uh, Suzanne, just take it like, and we'll do things in more like two and three minute backs and forth. Tell us about the bonus march, because that was great. Well, after World War I, um, those who served in the military were offered a bonus. And they, I think they weren't supposed to get it until how long later? 27 years. Right. And so the Depression came, and these people were starving, and they said, we want our bonuses now. And veterans from all over the country, black and white and brown, et cetera, marched on Washington, thousands and thousands of them, and set up camps in Washington and demanding their bonuses. This was in 1932, 1934, 1932? 32. And, um, 32. and basically, um, Hoover sent out MacArthur, Patton, and Eisenhower right. to break up the bonus march. And um, we forget also that the anti-Vietnam War movement, I mean, uh, was really huge inside the military. I actually got my start in freelance writing, um, doing a story for a magazine that's now defunct called Earth about Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland's tour, Fuck the Army tour of bases around the country. And they had these GI coffee houses um, that were set up all over the country, and, and there was so much dissent inside the military, and that's one of the reasons why they wanted to end the draft. Um, I mean, there's a long history of veteran dissent, and, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book, I mean, we talk about veterans who are white supremacists and so forth, and, and um, there are some of those, but it's interesting that the mainstream media tends to focus on that folk, on those folks. It doesn't focus on groups like Common Defense or Veterans for Peace or the many candidates who are veterans who are progressive, socialist, etc. And so you end up having a very skewed vision of the veteran population as sort of, you know, the January 6th types. And they there are January 6th types. But there are also many others that, that nobody um, highlights. And I mean, Steve. Yeah, let me stop there for a minute. Um, that's great. Uh, Steve, uh, why don't you lay out the basic premise of the book? Well, <clears throat> and the book what we think is different about our veterans. One more <clears throat> the book is called Our Veterans Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs by Suzanne Gordon, Steve Early, and Jasper Craven. Well, that, that 
the book, um, I think, is unique in uh, looking at military service, which it certainly is in the era of the uh, all-volunteer army, uh, as uh, a form of, of work. It's a job um, for millions of people who don't have uh, better job opportunities, uh, who are heavily recruited in low-income communities uh, and communities of color around the country, and uh, promised if they sign up uh, to join the Marines, or the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, uh, that they're going to have a better future. They're going to have a, a uh, uh, secure income for a few years. They're going to have good health coverage. They're going to have housing allowances. They're going to have, when they get out, affordable higher education uh, instead of you know being saddled with enormous personal debt in the form of student loans. Uh, they're going to have access to this great veterans health care system if they have job-related uh, health care uh, problems that they develop in the course of their military service. Uh, they're going to be able to get a great break on, uh, on home mortgage loans. So there's a whole package of, of benefits uh, a whole pitch that military recruiters make that makes military service as a job uh, an option for, for hundreds of thousands of, of young people around the country, though less appealing in recent years for reasons we can get into. And the problem is people get this job uh, and half of active duty military people are under the age of 25 to keep that in perspective about the demographic. I mean, we're talking about people just out of high school and for many of them, their first steady job. Well, it's a job without any rights. It's a job with no unions. It's a job without any Occupational Health and Safety Act protecting you. Uh, it's a job uh, with uh, no protection from any other uh, state or federal labor statutes. And as we document in the book, uh, you know, for modern day soldiers, uh, oftentimes, uh, the biggest threat to their health and safety uh, is not being sent to Iraq or, or Afghanistan, though that was a, a horrible and disastrous experience for hundreds of thousands of soldiers and, and the people of the countries that they occupied uh, for more than 20 years. But a lot of what soldiers experience unnecessarily is what we call friendly fire, exposure to, to military sexual assault to uh, excessive levels of noise, to toxic burn pits. Uh, people end up with all kinds of life-changing injuries and illnesses uh, that are preventable. And um, so what we try to focus on in the book is uh, uh, how that then becomes an issue for unions to work on, for veterans organizations to do a better job of dealing with, uh, for politicians to take up in something other than a kind of flag-waving, opportunistic, uh, you know, thank you for your service kind of performative patriotism that we see a lot of and really has nothing to do with the reality of what people experience in the military and the problems they come out of the military with. Well, you know, um, I was in front of a hotel in New York about 10 years ago, and there was a veterans group. There was a young black man and uh, you know everybody was passing him by so much for thank you for your service and there was a flyer that he had and it said oh this is two veterans oh are you home alone can't sleep uh, feel violent towards yourself 
violent towards your family, unbearable depression, guilt over what we did, that we didn't know we were supposed to do. Uh, are you on the verge of suicide? Please, please call us. You're not alone. You're not alone. And I read that, and it was so terrifying. And the brother who was there says, that's me. You know, I'm better. But you don't know what it's like. And another thing you had, I think, in your book was the promise of, in some way, the excitement of war for working-class youth who then are going to go back to Burger King. And where the Army, in some way, offers an exciting experience of camaraderie, doesn't tell you that you're going to commit war crimes. So you come back both with the horror of what you did and with the complete sense of isolation. Uh, Suzanne, maybe you could speak into that. And that was in your book. I thought it was great. Right. I mean, I think that the military, you know, we often focus on combat. And the reality is that only about 10% of people who serve in the military are ever in combat. So I always... I always try to, you know, I think we, we need to talk about that and the horrible experiences that that entails. But I think we have to remember that for, you know, the 90% of people who didn't get into combat it and will never go into combat, um, there are also horrible experiences because the military is a really unsafe employer and reckless employer, and you don't have to go you know, to Iraq or Afghanistan or, or Vietnam to experience that. I mean, the training regimens are punishing. They deliberately deprive people of sleep. They expose them to extreme exercise because they want to break people down and build them up into obedient people. They are learn to see the world in black and white because they learn, you know, to kill people. I mean, the military is service, but it's not the Peace Corps. It's not AmeriCorps. Um, 126 bases in America are polluted, um, and these are in America, and people are drinking polluted water. They're, they're, you know, one of the, we just packed a, passed something called the PACT Act, and um, one of the toxic exposures that it gives people coverage and healthcare and compensation for was Camp Lejeune, the, where the water was polluted. Um, you you have people with chronic pain because you know they're they're um, they're running around with all these uh, ter- you know loaded backpacks and I mean and um, and then there's military sexual trauma and um, PTSD that doesn't just come from you know being in battle traumatic brain injury I mean there's all this exposure to toxic noise and and so forth so and then you add to that with the 10 percent you know when when people are experiencing ptsd traumatic brain injury burn pit exposures that produce cancers and respiratory problems i mean the you know in 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 afghanistan and iraq uh they they hired pillow brown and root um, which is a notorious defense contractor and contractor that helped Lyndon Johnson steal his first Senate race in Texas. And um, basically they uh, ran, they were hired to dispose of garbage and they chose like a 15th century method of just burning, you know, corpses and, 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 and chemicals and batteries and everything, you name it, they burned it. Um, so, 
I think that the military, you know, talking about friendly fire, I mean, these people are exposed to to things that they don't have to be exposed to. I mean, obviously, the military military service, if you're in conflict, can expose you to to the possibility of, of death and so forth. But these are things that are preventable, and we really write a lot about that um, and and how without environmental controls, without the ability to organize, without the ability to really speak up and fight back, people can end up very badly damaged for decades, which is, you know, le- leads to the other thing that we write about, which is why they need this healthcare system that is designed specifically to repair or help people cope with that damage. But I think the problem is that even if it's only 10% of the people who are in combat, this is a, if you reduce it to an occupational safety and health issue, separate from that it's an operation of murder, then it takes on a different sympathy for me because I still agree with it. But it's different between carrying a heavy load and killing an Iraqi child. So obviously my the veterans is more around those who actually committed those crimes and how to help them grasp that they were asked to commit crimes. They might have done so willingly, enthusiastically at the time, only to realize the terror, Steve, I'll go to you for a minute, of what they were asked to do. I don't dismiss the other concerns, but it's the 10% who carried out the crimes and the 20 or 30 or 50% who trained them to do it, who didn't do it. Maybe you could speak to some of that, Steve, about the, the conditions in the VA and how it relates to those. I don't think either of us will take that tone with veterans, Eric. I'm really sorry. I don't think if we want to organize veterans, we should treat them as criminals. I think they are victims um, of horrible policies. And, you know, I hang around with veterans all the time. And this is what happened to, this is one of the the terrible things um, that, that people remember um, or veterans are afraid of when they talk to people on the left is that they will be accused of being murderers and baby killers and so forth. And so I don't think either Steve or I would ever talk that way when we talk to veterans or about veterans. I think that's a real mistake. I'm sorry to disagree with you. No, I mean, let, me, I, let me disagree back. But, let me just disagree back that, you know, <clears throat> I worked in the black community for 50 years. I go door to door every day talking to people about their lives. Um, I think the United States committed, we have never called them criminals. And this is really important, the difference. I've done anti-war organizing. I know how to talk to GIs and vets. I say you were sent to commit crimes, crimes against humanity. You know, just told them like in the Winter Soldier, one person said, my testimony covers the maltreatment of prisoners, the suspects actually in a convoy running down an old woman with no reason at all. Another soldier, my testimony concerns the leveling, leveling of villages for no valid reason, throwing Viet Cong suspects from the aircraft after binding them and gagging them with copper wire. My testimony involves 
burning of villages with civilians in them, the cutting off of ears, cutting off of help, of heads, torturing of prisoners, uh, calling in of, of artillery on villages, etc. So the Vietnam veterans against the war asked people to take responsibility for their actions, not that they were criminals. And I've never used the word. But I do think if the United States carries out war crimes, then that is partly. I agree with that. I agree with that. Suzanne, let me let me let me take. Let me just finish and then we'll go. So it's how quickly you move to a stereotype. We on the left don't know how to talk with prisoners. I'm sorry, I've been a prisoner. Don't know. I know how to talk to GIs, and I talk to them really well, and I talk to vets really well with empathy. But a lot of them are having PTSD over what they did. I feel horrible because in the context of the military, it seemed just right. And then when they go home, there's a horrible sense of what in the world have I done? So you can keep going back, but to stereotype me as those on the left, as soon as I hear those I, on the left. Wasn't okay, well, why don't we shift the frame a little bit here? There, okay. there, there's veterans groups on the left <laughs> right. that have grappled with these issues. Um, you know, one of the groups that we profile in the book, uh, Venerable Veterans for Peace, national organization. Right. It's been around since the mid 80s, um, uh, you know, founded originally by uh, folks who were uh, alumni of the uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War movement, joined later on by Gulf War veterans. They've got uh, a spattering of post 9-11 veterans. You know, they've got three or four thousand members. Great anti-militarist, anti-imperialist analysis, wonderful program of activity, membership, membership-based membership chapters around the country. And they do, you know, grapple with these issues. Uh, some of the younger vets organizations like About Face, uh, which used to be uh, uh, Iraq anti-war veterans, rebranded, uh, much smaller, um, but, you know, very militant, involved in all kinds of protest activity and 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 certainly very willing to confront the problem of, of U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, we've worked closely with a group called Common Defense, uh, which is, again, a network of progressive veterans that's been very critical of U.S. foreign policy, uh, tried to lobby for cuts in the in the Pentagon budget. Uh you know, we're not I'm not disagreeing that, you know, that the U.S. in these uh, imperial adventures uh, was responsible for war crimes and uh, making the lives of, of uh, millions of people in Iraq, Afghanistan, other countries worse rather than better. From an organizer standpoint, when you have 19 million people here in this country who served in the military, it's kind of a challenge. You know, how do you find ways to link up with them um, so that they're not so heavily recruited by right wing militias, by uh, the Trump movement, by white supremacist groups, by the Republican Party? And one of the areas of intersection that I think is positive um, is this uh, overlap between uh, labor and veterans affairs. About a million of the 19 million current living veterans are still in the workforce and they're union members. Um, the, uh, more than 100,000, many of them people of color, uh, work for the post office. 
Uh, another 100,000, representing about a third of the caregiving uh, workforce at the veterans' health care system, uh, also served in the military. So you have two very big groups of public employees served in the military, uh, many of whom are now union activists, involved in two of the most important anti-privatization struggles in the country. One, to save the VA from outsourcing and dismantling by the private health care industry, and veterans at the post office trying to defend uh, our public provision of and of mail delivery from uh, a parallel privatization effort. So my feeling is, yes, we need to deal with the history of U.S. foreign policy and the impact of imperialism and the stain of war crimes. But if we're trying to reach, you know, more than a few thousand people who have that anti-imperialist, anti-militarist perspective, among the millions who served in the military, you know, we've got to find other points of connection. And for me, you know, people, what they do later and becoming union members is is one field where some great work is going on and more needs to be done. Well, this is, we are veterans of the 60s. We talk like that. We're used to having debates and discussions and taking ideas seriously. Uh, yeah, Channing just wrote into the text. I wonder if they could talk more about the role of black veterans. Uh, I'll just say a word, Channing, and then we'll go on. Um, again, I just want to stay there for a minute because uh, it's a, you know, to both Steve and Suzanne, I mean, we organize people in the black community around police, right? Around, uh, around genocide. And we use the word genocide. Uh, most of the people don't agree completely with the word genocide, but they like where we're going, which is we care about your life. We care about, as Black Lives Matter said, we were just at a, uh, a very painful vigil. Our friend Patrice Colors, her cousin was just tased and murdered by police. So we go to these funerals all the time, and we try to talk to people <clears throat> about transformative vision. So... Uh, we definitely want to talk. I mean, the reason I, I wanted you on the show is because you've done a lot of great work about the crisis of how veterans are treated. And in my mind, you know, even when I listen to Wounded Warrior uh, ads on, which I know are probably not my cup of tea, is I would want to say to them, I'm coming to you as an anti-war organizer. I opposed every U.S. war. But I'm heartbroken about what you're going through right now, and I want to help. And the ability to say both in one sentence, you know, is one. And then could you focus on the fact that the all-volunteer court army is 43% now people of color, and I imagine over 25% of that is black. Tell us a little bit about the black vets, how they behave, you know, what's their politics like? How are they conceptualizing their problems? And I know we at the Strategy Center want to do more work on this. Well, I think, you know, um, people of color who, who um, come out of the military uh, face many of the same transition problems that uh, other people from poor and working class backgrounds who go into the military face, but with the additional burden of racial discrimination. Um, that's why having 
good public sector job opportunity, like going to work for the VA to serve your fellow veterans or going to work for the postal service to serve uh, the nation and your community in a different capacity is really important. One of the problematic uh, post-military jobs that has uh, been a draw for a number of African-American veterans involves uh, what we criticize in the book as a Pentagon to police pipeline. You know, the better known Pentagon to police pipeline, which was the focus, quite rightly, of, of many protests in 2020 as part of the larger Black Lives Matter protest that year, had to do with the billions of dollars in cast off military equipment that goes from the Pentagon, ends up in the hand of local law enforcement uh, uh, agencies. Uh, uh, all kinds of uh, weaponry and equipment that uh, contributes to the problem of militarized policing. We saw some dramatic, and disgusting displays of that in 2020. But there's a, another Pentagon to police pipeline that we describe in the book, and that involves personnel. Uh, right. About 20% of all law enforcement officers, and this includes uh, women and people of color, men in the military, uh, go into policing. It's something that's pushed very strongly by the Department of Defense. Uh, They put a lot of resources into promoting this uh, particular pathway to civilian employment. Uh, It ends up uh, with, uh, you know, uh, police departments that are have a disproportionate representation of of military veterans in their ranks, 19 or 20 percent. And as we report in the book and as a number of studies have shown, there are definite problems with the behavior of former military folks, not all of them, but many of them, in the military. They're, they're coming to police departments with the wrong sort of mindset. If you're interested in any kind of police reform, much less uh, defunding of the police or abolishing of the police. And uh, the experience of some of them as combat veterans being part of an occupying army in foreign countries like Iraq or Afghanistan, that's not a very, uh, you know, uh, positive transferable experience to put to work uh, policing the streets of San Francisco or L.A. or any other uh, city in the country. So, you know, one of the challenges, I think, for um, people of color coming out of the military, um, you know, is 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 taking advantage of the the GI Bill, which has enabled a million post 9/11 veterans to, to go back to school, to community colleges, to state universities, to private colleges, and get an affordable higher education, which is out of reach of millions of other people who end up going deeply into debt to go to college, and advantage of the VA, which among its nine million patients, you know, a majority are from poor and working class backgrounds, uh, people of color. And um, I think that's why we stress so much in the book, the importance of uh, programs and services geared to those most in need. The people who come out of the military, that 15 or 20% are part of the officer class, hey, they've got job offers up the wazoo. They become Pentagon uh, consultants, they go to work for Saudi Arabia, they get hired by military contractors, they go to work as managers in corporate America. It's the vast majority of enlisted people, men and women, 
blacks, Latinos, Asian Americans uh, who ha- face challenges, you know, in their civilian lives. And that's where I think um, veterans advocacy organizations, labor organizations, and peace organizations, uh, if they're able to extend a helping hand, can really make a difference on an individual and collective level. Well, I'm going to say one comment, and then um, I'd like each of you to do your very best infomercial in the very best sense of that about what's significant about the book and why people should get because at at voices from the front lines we say it's not listener sponsored radio it's organizer sponsored radio so they didn't come on the show to just discuss veterans affairs they have an important book they want you to read that i think you should read i think it's a great book it's an important book and as i started phenomenal detail of the specificity of who's covered, who's not, what percentage of people, uh, just phenomenal. The factual infrastructure is great. Just want to say one thing, and then I'll give you each your three minutes <laughs> talking directly directly to our listeners. <laughs> and oh, I'll, I'll tell you a different story than one of them there. So when I had my book taking on General Motors, uh, Steve was a very Steve and Suzanne. I stayed at your home, and. Steve was my tour manager. Now, your memory of it, it was a snowstorm. And how, you know, and how all the people you invited, I was stuck in a snowstorm. That wasn't my memory. You took me to the Harvard Trade Union program, and you said some of these people are kind of bureaucratic, let's just say, and don't expect much. And I sold 50 books there. And you said, how'd you get them? Then I went to the Framingham Auto Workers. And uh, Ellie Leary and others were there. And I brought 100 books. And I was promised 100 people. So about 30 came, almost all black. They all bought about 50 books. So then somebody said, wait, we don't want this brother going home to L.A. with all these books. Let's buy all of them. (laughs) And so 30 guys and women bought 100 books. So my memory is, if you got a book, and you believe in it, Steve, you can sell it in a snowstorm. <laughs> you can sell it anywhere. So with that encouragement and appreciation, Suzanne, uh, why should we, in the middle of a rainy L.A., oh, my God, rain, why should people, what's important seriously about why you want people to get this book? And then I'll go to Steve. Well, I, I think that, you know, one of the big messages um, that we give is, is, you know, we have this model for socialized medicine in America around the corner. And there are people fighting for single payer, whatever you want to call it, Medicare for all, socialized medicine, and national health system. And we outline um, what this system has done um, to help not just veterans, but everyone. I mean, the VA healthcare system is the only healthcare system in the country that actually serves the country as opposed to profit or a small subgroup of patients, you know, um, or, or CEOs with, you know, $15 million salaries. The VA serves everyone. I mean, I just decided to do, go back to doing meditation yesterday and I went online to try to find a meditation app. And they were all, you know, $12 a month, you know, $150 a year. And then I looked at the VA meditation app, which is free, right? And right. Um, that's not just for vets. It's it's for anyone. I'm not a vet. 
And um, so, and also um, when you look at um, what veterans groups have done um, to fight, what, what some veterans have done to fight for expanding veterans benefits, like someone like Tony Mazaki or Common Defense is now doing to fight for broader educational reforms and free education, uh, et cetera. And so, I mean, I think that people need to focus on veterans and and the veteran issue because if the right wing is sure doing it, you know, and they're doing it in, in all the wrong ways in this kind of performative patriotism, thank you for your service. By the way, we're cutting your benefits. Thank you for your service. By the way, um, we're not going to deal with military sexual assault. Thank you for your service. By the way, we, we're going to kill your health care system. You know, Two minutes so left. He, this is, I think, I'm going to thank you for your service <laughs> and go to Steve so you get the last word before our show goes off the air. <laughs> um, well, I hope people you know, will read the book because um, there's a lot of great campaigns out there that need more public support. Um, one that we've written about lately is, you know, the challenges around the country that often involve concerned public school teachers about the presence of the Junior ROTC program. Uh, again, this is a program that the military spends uh, a billion and a half a year on. Uh, they've targeted uh, uh, public high schools in low-income communities, uh, communities of color, uh, they've got half a million high school students, some of them forced to take military science classes on a mandatory basis. And military recruiters are using the Junior ROTC program to sign people up uh, once they graduate. Uh, there's been a lot of press reporting lately on some of the scandals, the sexual harassment by Junior ROTC instructors, the the involvement of the National Rifle Association and supplying equipment for junior ROTC programs. So again, I think one promising area of organizing in communities of color involving uh, concerned anti-military public school teachers, peace organizations, veterans organizations, and organizations of young people is uh, opposing the spread of junior ROTC programs. Uh, if you so want to nip this... Oh, Steve, I'm going to hold you there. Because yeah. of, uh, in the next segment, Jenny Martinez and I are going to talk about how we got the weapons out of the schools and how the Department of Defense is trying to come into STEM programs to teach science that's tied to military science. <laughs> so Suzanne and Steve, dear friends, you've written a very important book. And our listeners, I'm allowed to say, go out and get it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. The book is called Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Take good care of yourselves, and thank you for being on Voices from the Frontlines. Thanks for having us. Okay, take good care. Hey everybody, you're back on KPFK 90.7 FM. Uh, happy Tuesday morning. I hope you did something meaningful on Dr. Martin Luther King Day. Uh, I worked on my book, and uh, I made sure that I hated the United States all day. So that was my contribution to Dr. King's greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Uh, I'm here with Channing Martinez, uh, 
who was one of our voices from the front lines. We just were talking to Steve Early and Suzanne Gordon. Uh, Channing, tell me about your own struggle that does relate the struggle of black people to the struggle against the military and the public schools. Absolutely. And for the record, I spent Dr. King Day shouting down the police that were in the parade saying a thousand more plus is a thousand less police. Um, All right. Great, great mind paid alignment. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so we, we, we got news last year that uh, LAUSD put out a proposal for programs to help black students inside the Black Student Achievement Program. If you listen to previous shows, you'll uh, hear that we actually won a hundred million dollars for black students and we defunded the police by 35%. We organized like hell to make sure that the Black Student Achievement Program did not give one more dollar or one more inch to the Department of Defense. And what we learned through that process was that uh, the Starbase program, which is this program that is run by the Department of Defense and uses the guise of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, to recruit students into the military, um, pretending that they're going to be really successful scientists. The problem is they're going to be scientists for military and dropping bombs and figuring out all kinds of technologies to destroy the third world. So what are you doing to stop it? We are... So far, talking to students, we're talking to board members, we found out that at least even some of our own students were in the STAR-based program. Um, we've advocated with the B- Black Student Achievement staff um, to our, I guess to my surprise, I don't know if it's really surprising, but our organizing has been effective so far in that the Black Student Achievement Program, um, the managers, uh, came up to me directly and said, by the way, wink, wink, we got rid of the, we didn't, we didn't approve their application, just so you know. <laughs> and so, are you in a group? You keep saying we, are you in a particular group, Jenny? My apologies. Yes. I'm an organizer with the Bus Riders Union. I'm the director of organizing and uh, we're leading, I'm leading a team of uh, about four or five organizers. So, and what are you asking for? Well, we both want the Starbase program and all Department of Defense connections to LSD gone. Um, okay, so this is uh, you, I urge you to go on Counterpunch and read my article how we got the tanks and the M16s out of the OA Unified School District. So on our show, we make a strong connection between black liberation and anti-militarism and anti-imperialism. Three minutes I got left, Jenny. Talk about the Knicks. So, Nick fans, we got to fire Tom Thibodeau. So, the New York Knicks should fire Tom Thibodeau, and I mean it. He's a very well-respected coach. A lot of people love him. Great defensive coach. But he's a lunatic in the sense that he wants to win every game, and he's going to keep five players in for 48 minutes if he needs to. And the Knicks keep almost losing every game they win because these people are completely exhausted. He's got Cam Reddish on the bench. You heard it here first. They're going to trade Cam Reddish. He's going to become a star in this league. they got Evan Fournier, who led the French team in the Olympics. But no, they just sit there. He won't play them at all. At all. It's so humiliating. They go through a whole 48 minutes. He won't even give them 
seven or eight minutes. He's got Obi Toppin behind Julius Randall. A phenomenal talent, Obi. All right, you got to give Julian third, Julius 30 and give Obi 18, but he gives Obi 9. Poor Obi is just sort of hanging around now, demoralized, but if you ever see him, he's a human highlight film. So, I'm serious. Fire Thibodeau, get a human being in there who likes people and plays 11 or 12 people, even if you have most of your starters with most of the minutes, you've got to get other players involved. It's humiliating to be sitting on the bench for 12 straight games, and you can't get Cam Reddish in. You can't get Evan Fournier in, or you paid $70 million over four years. So here's what I suggest, Ben. I'm really getting tired of voices from the front lines anyway. I would like to coach the Knicks, and Tom Thibodeau can come and work with Channing, but Channing will never get in because it will just be Tom Thibodeau. So with that, you've been on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. And if I don't get you scared, Nina Simone will. Take it out, Nina. The end is near, and so I got to face the final curtain. Friends, I'll say it clear and state my case. Of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway and more, much more than this. I dig my way. Yes, regrets. I've had a few, 